Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name's Chris Shear, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this episode, we're tackling the globetrotting, or I guess in this case, globe-sailing, Captain Ferdinand Magellan, an explorer and sailor who often holds the title of the first man to circumnavigate the world. Also, just saying at the top of the show, Ferdinand Magellan was Portuguese, but sailed for Spain. I learned Spanish in school, but as I live in the United States, I learned Latin American Spanish, so forgive me for any mispronunciations in both the Portuguese and Castilian Spanish names. That aside, there's a bit more to Magellan's life than just his voyage around the world. Obviously, that's the major draw to his story, but we'll learn more about his life before we actually get to that point. Also, in the background history lesson, we'll take a look at the history of Europe's relationship with Eastern Asia in terms of sailing west, because that's why Magellan will ultimately try circling the globe. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the Iberian Peninsula at the turn of the 16th century in Around the World by Daft Punk, featuring Ferdinand Magellan. <laughs> Let's talk about Europe's interest in reaching Asia, as well as Europe just sailing west across the Atlantic in general. This particular bit of history might date back much further than you would think. Nowadays, it's fairly common knowledge that Christopher Columbus was not the first European to attempt sailing west across the Atlantic. What might not be common knowledge is how far back Europeans, or at least people living west of Asia, have been attempting to make long-distance voyages using the Atlantic. Dating back to antiquity, so ancient Greece, people weren't entirely sure if you could sail across the Atlantic Ocean in order to reach the Indian Ocean. According to history's frenemy Herodotus, the Egyptian pharaoh Necho II commissioned a crew from Phoenicia, a historical civilization around modern-day Lebanon, to sail from the Red Sea to the Nile Delta. This group allegedly sailed around Africa in order to reach the Mediterranean. That would have been around 600 BCE. A little less than 500 years later, Eudoxus of Kizikis, a Greek navigator from Turkey, attempted to sail around Africa from the eastern side after trading with India via the Arabian Sea. Monsoon winds had forced his ship much further south down the Horn of Africa than usual, where the Greek sailor found a shipwrecked boat he thought was from Spain. Thinking the Spanish had gone around the western side of Africa, after returning home, Eudoxus organized an effort to attempt to sail from Spain and circumnavigate Africa by using the western half of the continent, but difficult conditions forced the voyage to return home before making it that far south. Obviously, the big game changer for European-Asian trading efforts was the Silk Road. Trading between Eastern Asia, namely China, with powers further west can be dated back to around the 2nd millennium BCE, perhaps even earlier, with what appears to be samples of Chinese silk found in ancient Egyptian tombs. Originally, the Silk Road was a trading route between Eastern China and Central Asia, mainly Mongolia, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan, that was formally created sometime around 130 BCE. The Achaemenid Persians and the Macedonian empires allowed trade to flourish even further west because they controlled lands stretching from Europe across the Middle East. The Roman Empire would see the Silk Road finally reach mainland Europe after the expansion into Egypt and the Arabian Peninsula. 
but the Silk Road, the grand trading system that had flourished for centuries, would fall apart, at least on the European end, with the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople in 1453. Europe was now disconnected from Asia and would need to find a new way to get those sweet Chinese silks and Indian spices. background history lesson this episode because the lead up to Magellan's story is something I find very interesting. So Europe can no longer access Asia from the east. That's when people first started thinking about the Atlantic. By this point, there had been at least one civilization that we know for sure had crossed the Atlantic Ocean, the Scandinavians. Around the year 1000 CE, the Norse explorer Leif Erikson and other Viking sailors reached eastern Canada via Greenland. They set up a settlement and called the territory Vinland, but after some time the settlement was abandoned. This was the first recorded arrival of the Old World and the New World, and yes, we have found archaeological evidence that this settlement existed. The other two possible encounters of the Eastern Hemisphere with the Western Hemisphere are more shrouded in legend and theory than actual reality. There are many possible stories of groups sailing west and finding land, but I'll briefly talk about two that I find very compelling, more so out of the story than out of possibility of it actually happening. The first possible group to reach the Americas, outside the population that became Native Americans and other First Nations people, was possibly the ancient Egyptians. There are two big theories as to why this was possible. One, findings of coca, aka the stuff used to make cocaine, and tobacco leaves in Egyptian mummies. And two, the papyrus boat of Thor Heyerdahl. For the first topic, coca and tobacco are native to America. So, in order for these substances to wind up in Egyptian mummies, they would have needed to get these substances from the Americas. Maybe. Critics of this theory have two major arguments. One, these coca and tobacco traces could actually be from now extinct species that grew in ancient Egypt or nearby lands, and two, these samples were accidentally introduced into the mummies after they were excavated. But still, It'd be fun to think that the Egyptians were able to sail across the Atlantic. But how did they do that? Well, in 1969, Norwegian ethnologist Thor Heyerdahl decided to try and test out a theory he had that civilizations from Africa crossed the Atlantic. His theory was based around both Central America and Africa having pyramids, which is very dumb for reasons we won't go into. Nonetheless, Thor hired boatmakers to help him recreate an ancient Egyptian design for a papyrus-based boat. He christened the boat as Ra-2 and sailed it across the Atlantic in 1970, making it from Morocco to Barbados. That's 4,000 miles in an ancient vehicle. While it's still only speculation that Egyptians made it to America, there is proof that, if they wanted to do so, it was possible. Okay, so let's look at another possible pre-Columbian expedition to the Americas. I'll make this one short because it is entirely based in speculation. In the 6th century CE, an Irish monk named Brendan of Clonfert supposedly set sail on a voyage across the Atlantic to find the Garden of Eden, where he found what he called the Isle of the Blessed, which is now referred to as St. Brendan's Island. 
this voyage became a legend that was recorded in later medieval scripts. For centuries, people have tried to find out if Brandon's voyage actually happened, and if so, where St. Brandon's Island actually is. There are quite a few people who suggest that Brendan and his fellow sailors actually landed in the Americas. Like I said, this story is very much mostly legend, but if true, it could point to even earlier expeditions across the Atlantic. But let's stop dwelling in the further past and catch up closer to Magellan's own timeline. Obviously, the big name in transatlantic travel is Christopher Columbus. In 1492, he sailed for Spain, believing he could reach India by sailing west. He never made it to India because there were two massive continents sitting in his path. Columbus never made it to India, but still insisted on referring to the natives as Indians, beginning what would only continue to be an awful relationship between white people and the native cultures of America. I'm not going to say much more about Columbus here, but awful dude, even his crew hated him. Six years later would mark the incredible voyage of Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama. Well, first I'll have to add that Europeans discovered the Cape of Good Hope, aka the southern tip of Africa, in 1488. Ten years later, in 1498, da Gama led the first successful trip around the African continent in order to reach Asia. This sailing path, known as the Cape Route, has been in use ever since. And before we finally jump into Magellan's story proper, sorry, I know it's been a long time of talking about people other than him, I just want to say that all of these journeys were made obsolete in 1869 with the construction of the Suez Canal. Well, some ships still use the Cape Route, but the Suez Canal in Egypt is the main route of oceanic trade between Europe and Asia. But let's go back to the past before the major conveniences were made. It's back to the Age of Discovery in order to learn about a man who tried to do what, in all honesty, had already been accomplished by others. Ferdinand Magellan was born Fernand de Magalhães in 1480 to a family of minor Portuguese nobility. His father was mayor of the town of Sabrosa, Magellan's hometown. As a young boy, Ferdinand served as a page to Queen Leonora, wife of King John II. It was during his time as a page that Magellan first would have heard about the spice trade of the East Indies, aka the islands of the Indian Ocean. That would go on to inform his major voyage. By the time he was 15 years old, he was fully in the service of John II's cousin and successor King Manuel I. Around this time would have been when Vasco da Gama found the Cape Route around Africa to India, which led to Magellan's first major expedition on the ocean. Ten years later, at the age of 25 in 1505, Magellan enlisted in the 7th India Armada. This fleet of ships escorted Francisco de Almeida, who was sailing to southern Asia in order to take his position as the first viceroys of Portuguese India. Yeah, da Gama landed in India and Portugal was immediately like, how can we make this ours? Also, FYI, Portuguese India was not just parts of modern-day India, but also other islands along the southeastern coast of Africa and other islands further into the Indian Ocean. Magellan would remain in India over the course of the next eight years, where he served in different capacities in several regions throughout southwestern India. 
He also participated in the naval battles of Kenanor in 1506 and Diu in 1509. Later, he would serve under the command of a man named Diogo Lopez de Sacaria, who was organizing an expedition to the Malaysian Sultanate of Malacca. The goal of this expedition was to set up an embassy within the Sultanate while checking out the local spice trade, and probably also spying on the Chinese. Also in this expedition was a man named Francisco Serón, who was possibly Magellan's cousin. King Manuel ordered this expedition to be peaceful, and for the most part, the Portuguese did their best not to go full conquering force. However, the locals were distrusting of de Sacaria's crew and convinced the Sultan, who had already allowed the Portuguese to set up an embassy by this point, to betray the peace he had made with the foreigners. In 1511, the Portuguese returned to Malacca with the intention to overthrow the Sultan and capture the city of Malacca. In July, Portuguese ships arrived at the city and about a month later they had captured the city and ousted the Sultan. Just like its neighbor to the north, the city was now known as Portuguese Malacca. After the conquest, Magellan and Saron went their separate ways, with Magellan heading back west to Portugal, though not before he decided to pick up a native indentured servant, baptized him, and changed the man's name to Enrique. You know, the usual white Catholic tactics. Saron, on the other hand, headed out east to the Malucas, which yes, is different from Malacca. The Malukas, nowadays called the Maluku Islands, are an archipelago in eastern Indonesia. Back in Magellan's day, the Malukas were referred to as the Spice Islands due to their abundant natural cultivation of nutmeg and cloves. In 16th century Europe, cloves were the most expensive of the spices. While used as a seasoning for food, it was also believed that you could use it to improve your vision, reduce a fever, or, when mixed with milk, increase your sexual performance. I don't think any of that actually works, so don't try it. Magellan and Saron remained in contact, with the latter sending Magellan letters from the Spice Islands. It's believed that this correspondence is what would lead to Magellan deciding to embark on his journey around the world. Magellan did not immediately begin his dreams of grandeur just yet. After all, he sailed for Spain, but Magellan was still a Portuguese citizen. In 1513, he joined a military campaign in Morocco where he was severely injured, forcing him to walk with a limp for the rest of his life. To make matters worse, Magellan was then accused of stealing Portuguese resources and trading the stolen supplies to the Moors. The Moors were the Muslim population living in northwestern Africa, the Iberian Peninsula, Sicily, and Malta. These accusations ended up proving to be false, but they forever sullied Magellan's reputation. After May of 1514, Ferdinand was unable to find reliable sources of employment, or at least employment he wanted. It's said in 1515 he was offered a crew position on a ship but rejected the offer. Saron's letters had convinced his cousin to plan an expedition to the Spice Islands, but Magellan couldn't actually embark on said expedition if he couldn't gather the resources for it. Only a king or queen could give you that kind of money. Ferdinand asked King Manuel three times to grant him the funds for his expedition, but Manuel denied him each and every time. So Magellan decided to do something big. 
If his home nation wouldn't grant him this opportunity, maybe its next-door neighbor would. After all, Spain had financed Columbus's voyages to the New World. Maybe they would be more willing to help out a guy with the promise of that great spice money in return. In 1517, Magellan had moved his family to Seville, Spain. He gained a career in the court of King Charles I, who would later go on to become Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire. It was also around this time that Magellan became a Spanish citizen and changed his name from Fernand de Magalhães to Fernando de Magallanes. King Charles was much more willing to listen to Magellan's proposal. Ferdinand viewed sailing around Africa as too cumbersome of a journey. He thought it would be easier to sail west across the Atlantic, sail south of the Americas, and cross the Pacific Ocean in order to reach the Spice Islands. I've tried looking up distances and times it would take to do everything to compare both journeys. We have the amount of time it allegedly took Magellan to reach the islands, but I couldn't find anything concrete for how long it takes to sail the Cape Route. By the way, the Cape Route from Spain to Singapore is around 10,000 nautical miles, which is around 11,500 miles or 18,500 kilometers. Also, luckily for Magellan, there was this cool new thing called the Treaty of Tordesillas. In June of 1494, Spain and Portugal agreed to a massive landmark agreement to divide all of the new territories they were picking up. They chose a meridian that was about halfway between the Cape Verde Islands, which are off the coast of Western Africa, and the islands of Cuba and Hispaniola that Columbus had recently discovered. According to the Treaty of Tordesillas, everything west of the meridian was now owned by Spain, and everything east was owned by Portugal. If Magellan were to sail south and east around Africa, he would be going through Portuguese territories. It would be much easier sailing for Spain if he was able to navigate his voyage through Spanish islands. King Charles decided this was a grand idea and agreed to finance Magellan's expedition to the Spice Islands. Unfortunately, word of Magellan's success in Spain soon reached the ears of King Manuel back in Portugal. Despite the fact that he could have financed his former subject, Manuel was absolutely furious and sought to prevent Magellan from setting sail. He had the Magellan family home back in Sabrosa vandalized and possibly even hired assassins to go after the sailor. Obviously, if these assassins existed, they failed. Manuel also sent out a small fleet of ships to stop Magellan when the navigator was getting his own fleet together, but the Portuguese fleet failed to capture Magellan. With danger from Portugal out of the way, on September 20, 1519, Ferdinand Magellan and his fleet embarked from Spain for the beginning of their journey across the world. also called the Armada de Malucas, was composed of over 250 sailors across five ships. There was the San Antonio, the Concepcion, the Victoria, the Santiago, and Magellan's lead ship he personally captained, the Trinidad. They left from the city of San Lucar de Barrameda and sailed south until they reached the Canary Islands for further supplies. A little over a month later, Magellan's crew reached South America. Unfortunately, that was the end of the easy part. Ferdinand believed that there would be some magical shortcut that cut across South America that would allow for faster voyages to the Spice Islands. So he had his crew hug the shores of Brazil as they slowly made their way down the coast. 
They didn't reach Rio de Janeiro until December. Despite allegedly carrying enough supplies for two years worth of traveling, life aboard the five ships became tense. Food supplies were already beginning to be rationed. They had been sailing for months down the coast when, on April 1st, 1520, the captains of the Santiago, the Concepcion, and the Victoria declared their intent to mutiny Magellan. Magellan and those still loyal to him managed to fend off the mutineers. The captain of the Victoria, a man named Luis de Mendoza, was killed during the mutiny. The other two captains were accused of murder and treason. One was beheaded, and the other was left stranded on the shores of South America. To make matters worse, the Santiago was wrecked during a storm while on a scouting mission. Luckily, nobody died in the accident. Broken and battered, Magellan and his crew finally found the answer to their prayers in October of 1520, 13 months after departing from Spain. Near the very southern tip of South America, they discovered a strait. A strait is a narrow passage of water that connects two larger bodies of water, usually oceans. This was their way forward, the path that in modern days is known as the Strait of Magellan. Despite a lucky find, and despite the fact that they were basically at the most southern point of South America anyways, the Armada de Malucas was not in for an easy path forward. It took them nearly a month to navigate the Strait of Magellan. Along the way, the captain of the San Antonio decided that he'd had enough and turned around. With one ship lost to storms and now another deserted, Magellan's armada was now just three ships. But in November of 1520, Magellan's band finally crossed the strait and found themselves in what was previously known to the Spanish as the Mar del Sur, or the South Sea. Magellan apparently found the vast ocean before him a welcome and peaceful sight compared to the rough month he had previously faced in the Strait of Magellan. Therefore, he decided to name the waters the Pacific Ocean. Yup, he's the man we have to thank for that name. But here's another fun fact. We're dealing with what was essentially Europe's first voyage in this part of the Pacific Ocean. They didn't have GPS. Heck, they didn't even have accurate maps of the area. So, ignorant fool that he was, Magellan figured that his crew was basically already at the Spice Islands. He estimated that they maybe had three days left, possibly four if things got a little rough. It took them over three months to reach land. In March of 1521, Magellan and his crew landed on the island of Guam. They had been at sea for 99 days without fresh food. While there, the native population came aboard the ship in what they believed to be a trade exchange. However, due to the lack of mutual communication between the natives, the Chamorro people, and Magellan's fleet, the latter group thought the Chamorro were trying to rob their ships. Magellan fought back, killing several of the Chamorro and setting fire to a village. On March 16th, Magellan's crew reached the Philippines, landing on the island of Homanhon. By this point, Magellan had only 150 men left out of what had been around 270 when the fleet originally left Spain. Luckily, the remaining members of the expedition found a much easier experience on this island and engaged in trade with the local population. 
While they had not yet made it to the Malukas, and despite everything else that had happened on the way there, and again, despite what was yet to come, Magellan had succeeded in finding a way to travel west from Europe to reach the islands of Southeast Asia. After allowing for a bit of rest on Homenhan, Magellan and his crew sailed to the neighboring island of Saluan. There he learned from a local leader the names of the surrounding islands and a bit of the local customs. Also, if you are wondering how Magellan and his crew were able to speak with the locals, Magellan had brought along his servant Enrique, the guy he had employed from Malacca. They managed to befriend many of the local leaders of the islands throughout the Philippines, and something that particularly piqued Magellan's interest was all the gold the tribal leaders were wearing. Magellan continued sailing throughout the Visayas, the central islands of the Philippine archipelago. Here they met several of the local rajas, the term for a prince or monarch in many southern and southeastern Asian nations. Along the way, Magellan and his crew began the process of converting the locals to Christianity. This was much easier to do after they managed to convert some local leaders. Also, it's said that the local population readily accepted this new religion, but did they really? The Western Christian world is very ready to say that non-European civilizations were glad to accept Christianity, but that usually means there were forced conversions. Either way, on March 31st, 1521, Easter Sunday of that year, Magellan, his crew, and possibly some of the native population who was converted held the first documented Catholic Mass in the Philippines in the municipality of Limasawa, though there's argument among historians over whether this was actually the first Mass celebrated, so some people refer to it as the first Easter Sunday Mass celebrated in the Philippines. That same day, Magellan planted a wooden cross on the island of Cebu, where it allegedly still stands today at the Magellan's Cross Pavilion. But Magellan's quest for Catholic dominance in the Philippines would reach a stalling point with the island of Mactan. The locals there were said to be very resistant to the foreigners who were exploring the local islands. By this point, Ferdinand and his crew had converted over 2,000 locals to his religion. They weren't planning on stopping now. So, in late April, Magellan and his crew set off for Mactan for their most perilous mission yet. One of the leaders of the people of Mactan was a man named Lapu-Lapu. He was known for using pirate tactics against merchant ships within the area. The name of the island, Mactan, actually developed from the local word Mangatan, meaning those who lie in wait. Magellan led a force of about 60 Spanish soldiers with around 20 to 30 smaller warships provided by local rajas. They landed on Mactan in the middle of the night. Magellan gave one final offer to Lapu-Lapu to convert to Catholicism, but the chieftain refused. Magellan then came up with a very stupid plan. Hoping to use Spain's more advanced warfare, said in heavy air quotes, to impress his local allies and scare Lapu-Lapu's soldiers, Magellan told his allies to return to their boats while his tiny army handled things. Handling things meant setting fire to several of the houses on the island. Obviously, Lapu-Lapu and his men responded to the provocation. 
In fact, 1,500 of Lapu-Lapu's soldiers responded to the provocation of 60 Spaniards. With odds like that, even with guns and crossbows, the outcome should not be surprising. Magellan's crew were utterly defeated. During the conflict, Magellan was hit by a bamboo spear. When he fell, Lapu-Lapu's men quickly surrounded him to finish the job. Ferdinand Magellan died on April 27, 1521. Magellan's remaining men fled to the ships and quickly made way for the return voyage to Spain. And even though the Philippines would eventually become a Catholic nation, Lapu-Lapu is still recognized as a national hero for being the first Filipino to stand up to foreign colonization efforts. So with Magellan dead, what became of the small remainder of his fleet? The two remaining ships, the Trinidad and the Victoria, eventually made it to the Spice Islands in November, where they did indeed get a decent supply of the local wares. Unfortunately, it was soon realized that the Trinidad was damaged and would be unable to complete the voyage. The last vestiges of the Armada de Malucas, captained by Juan Sebastian Alcano, arrived in Spain on September 6, 1522. It may have taken them almost two years, but the crew had completed the mission. Of around 270 sailors who left in September of 1519, only 18 or 19 had completed the mission. But their captain was dead, and sadly enough, Magellan's family back in Seville had also passed away while he was out at sea. Nothing remained of Ferdinand Magellan. So yes, I do want to immediately say that Ferdinand Magellan, despite all the records saying so, was not the first person to circumnavigate the Earth. Technically, there were 18 or 19 people to do so, but if you want a single name to pick out, it would be Juan Sebastian Elcano. But that's not to say the voyage was a complete bust. Magellan's dream of a western route to Eastern Asia had several major impacts on the world. First, we got the name of the Pacific Ocean. Second, the Philippines became a Catholic nation. Third, and in my opinion most important, was that people got a better idea at the actual scale of our planet. Remember that Magellan had thought crossing the Pacific Ocean would take a few days? That was about the halfway point of their journey. So yes, even though he gets way too much credit, including stealing a title from Juan Sebastian Elcano, Magellan's expedition was definitely one for the history books. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and subscribe to the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're heading to Ireland for the tale of a man who was one of the first to unite the hundreds of kingdoms within Ireland. It's the story of the High King Brian Boru. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. <laughs>